1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University. And I'm very, very excited today to be joined by four wonderful guests to talk about the new book, Your Computer is on Fire, which is a collection of essays and writings about computing, technology, artificial intelligence, many other issues uh, that are particularly prominent Right now, And this book really sounds the alarm. Your computer is on fire. We're going to talk about what that means with the four editors of this volume, Thomas Mullaney, Benjamin Peters, Mar Hicks, and Kavita Philip. Thank you so much to the four of you for being here. I'd love if we started by just um, each of you introducing yourselves. Who are you? Where do you work? What do you do? and uh, then we can get into the questions. So I will go in the order uh, of these names on the on the cover of the book. Um, maybe, Thomas Mullaney, we could start with you.
0: Hi. Well, thanks for hosting us uh, for this. And my name is Tom Mullaney, and I am professor of Chinese history at Stanford University, uh, where I teach China, Asia, transnational and global history and history of technology and science and um, my I guess, most recent book before this was the Chinese Typewriter: A History with MIT Press, and then uh, forthcoming, the Chinese Computer: A History, uh, which uh, will be coming out in the near future.
1: Fantastic. Next up, Benjamin Peters.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm ben Peters, uh, media historian, media scholar at the University of Tulsa, um, where I teach uh, primarily in media theory and media history. Um, largely around the Soviet century. I'm largely interested in the origins and consequences of the information age and tend to kind of work uh, Cold War angles. Um, My first book, also with MIT Press, was uh, How Not to Network a Nation, the Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet. Um, And I'm delighted to be here.
3: Wonderful. Next, Mar Hicks. Hi, everybody. Um, I am a historian of Britain, computing, uh, sexuality, labor, and gender. And my first book was called Programmed Inequality. It was about how gendered labor changes affected computing and how gender is integral to the history of computing. And my upcoming book, which I'm writing now, is called Digital Resistance, Hidden Histories of the Information Age. And it goes into a lot of issues that we're grappling with now, like transphobic algorithmic bias, for instance. And it tells the longer history of these issues and how they didn't just spring up around the turn of the century, but have been around Hmm. since the frame era. Fascinating. And uh, finally, Kavita Philip.
4: Hi, Matthew. Thank you. I'm Kavita Philip. I'm the President's Excellence Chair in Network Cultures at the University of British Columbia in the Department of English. And I teach courses in science and technology studies and across the departments of geography and the iSchool. Uh, my interest is in colonial and post-colonial science and technology. So uh, I'm, I started with histories of the 19th century in which I was really concerned with questions of um, environmental change and um, indigenous rights around the so-called modernization of the subcontinent. Um, so I take a long historical view, I'm interested in what changes between the late 18th and the late 20th century in colonial contexts. Uh, My first book was called Civilizing Natures. It was on race and resources in British colonial South India. And my forthcoming book is on the digital turn and how that makes a difference to hacking modernity for a post-colonial nation. And it's called Studies in Unauthorized Reproduction.
1: Thank you so much. Well, clearly, based on those introductions alone, we have uh, an an all-star cast here, um, uh, many different areas of expertise and time periods and geographies. um, But you all came together to produce um, this volume, Your Computer is on Fire. Tom, maybe we can start with you. What were the origins of this project?
0: Well, this project took shape over the course of three conferences, um, the first in 2016 and then the subsequent to uh, over the intervening years. The the sort of inaugural conference was called Shift Control, New Perspectives on Computing and New Media. And that took place in May of 2016 at Stanford. And um, I, I had decided to, to um, begin organizing this. Um, and we did a sort of kind of prototype of this as a panel uh, for a uh, conference to basically test the waters and see whether or not it would be possible to convene scholars working, especially on uh, the global history of computing. That was a major, a uh, major kind of objective of that of that first conference. So, you know, bringing together scholars of computing in Latin America, in um, in Asia, in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, basically, to, to complement, not as an alternative not as a, a, to the exclusion of the classic histories of computing in the United States, in Britain, and parts of Western Europe, but rather to to uh, contextualize or place place these more conventional, geographically at least conventional histories in a, in a global context. And uh, that conference really the, the the response to that conference, both in terms of attendance. The back and back when we could see each other face to face, but also in terms of its support from a, a diverse and wide variety of programs on Stanford campus, like the the, the departments and disciplines that that funded that um, that conference are not the ones that typically fund computing conferences. To put it put it simply, and that was that was extremely encouraging. The scholarship was amazing. It turned into a special issue of Technology and Culture. Um, Eid Medina won uh, the Payson uh, Prize for the presentation that became the article in that in that special issue, and uh, it was very clear that things needed to continue, and so there was discussion in a, in a, in a closing session about uh, of that conference of what to do with this, and we were trying to, you know, ask let's let's not let's not um, silo all of these great all of this great work simply in a overpriced edited volume that very few people get will get their hands on, um, and we simply have too much good stuff just for a special issue. So the idea had been floated around that time for a volume that would have something of a hybrid um, academic and more student oriented and public oriented tone. Uh, and that w- that became exciting, but it was a it was a there was a, an ellipsis. We didn't quite know how to make that. Transition, and as often happens with conferences and workshops, the conference itself was extremely diverse in terms of um, the the speakers, in terms of discipline, in terms of rank, um, uh, gender, uh, and but then you know people go their own ways. They say, uh, "Well, I actually have already committed my piece somewhere," or "I I'm, I don't have time in my schedule for a variety of reasons." It was becoming clear that or Junior scholars wanted to focus on things that pertain more directly to tenure. So by the end of when the, when the chips fell after shift control, it was clear that if we were to go forward, it was not going to be diverse in the way that we had committed to and wanted to with the volume. And then a sort of uh, lightning bolt saving grace moment was uh, command lines, a conference in 2017, um, which Mar was directly involved in organizing at the computer, which was held at the Computer History Museum, Kavita was one of the, um, Kavita and I uh, were, I don't know what the proper term is, a sort of invited speakers for the opening of that. And, uh, you know, I was um, in the audience simply, I was just, I did my piece and then I was simply an audience member for the remainder of it. And uh, just one after the next, I was blown away by, by, by talks, especially by early career scholars who's, whose work I wasn't aware of. Uh, and one person in particular, for myself, I credit with a sea change, I think, in, uh, in the planning, which was uh, Halcyon Lawrence, who is in the volume and has a, just a brilliant chapter called Siri Disciplines. And about accent bias and voice recognition. Uh, and after I saw her speak, I went up afterwards and just introduced myself and said how much I admired the talk. And we we got, had a nice conversation. Um, but I know that was the moment when inside I said we have to start over. And by which I mean uh, it. We we can't just sort of plow forward with those you know from Shift Control who were still able to contribute something, we needed to start completely over. And so it was a kind of a taxing process of going back out into knocking doors and putting together funding applications. But basically, an entirely new round of funding and proposals happened for a a third, well, a second conference that I organized, but a third conference in this sequence, which was simply called Your Computer is on Fire. And Your Computer is on Fire, What, what we did was, um, by invitation, in essence, and I think there was an open call, but by invitation, reach out to a number of uh, early career scholars in particular, but also scholars working in different areas and avenues that were that we knew we wanted to have in the volume, uh, as well as some luminaries out there who, you know, just uh, hadn't uh, taken part in the in the um, in shift control. And to invite them really to turn it into a conference, but also a public conference, but also a manuscript workshop. Like at this point, we were inviting people to join a book project. And fortunately, the contract for the book was waiting, in essence. Um, It was already, it was a strange sort of contractual thing because without going too long into depth of it, when I signed the contract for uh, Chinese typewriter and Chinese computer. There was a bit of um, bit of competition because it was a simultaneous submission with MIT Press and then one other, or the two other competing presses for those two, and MIT came out swinging and basically without uh, without even writing a proposal, they tried to, they 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 really wanted these two books and they wanted to defi- definitively finish the contract on it, um, and they said we will offer you a, a three book contract. We want. Because they were aware of shift control, they were aware of these other things, and so the book was waiting, the contract structure was waiting, and then came um, these things. And then the the last point I would say is the other person in in, in my view who really deserves um, like Halcyon just <laughs> blew things up in a in a in a positive, wonderful way. The the the, the one person uh, who I want to openly and you know really loudly trumpet here is is Ben is is Benjamin Peters I don't want to embarrass you but um at some point uh, I I received an email and I hope this isn't embarrassing Ben but I I love this story and I think it's a great <laughs> kind of guide for for anyone listening please I received an email from Ben we were already co-organizing this and he said could you use any help you know uh if you it, you know don't want to be presumptuous but if you could use any help on this edited volume because originally uh it was it was contracted um to 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 me by by the press do you, do you need any help if so i'd love to and um and basically that was the beginning of how we formed into a four person um editorial group who i think in my view we worked wonderfully together um we all brought completely different things to the table and uh and had had been not been so had so much foresight and been so really bold to ask that question. Um, I may have made the terrible mistake, the terrible mistake of trying to to proceed as a, a, um, like sort of in, at least at the editorial side alone, which would have failed. The book would never have happened. It would never be what it is. And um, so I am, I am deeply, deeply grateful to Halcyon for just in my mind, detonating things. And then to to bend for um, beginning the process of bringing bringing these sundry pieces together because as anyone who's made an edited volume knows uh, they fail more often than they succeed so uh, that's mm-hmm. kind of my origin story first time telling that story so
1: wonderful well thank you thank you for sharing that it's really interesting and it seems to me like you know this book was kind of in the water in terms of the conferences that were being organized, the fact that the press was just kind of ready, uh, for this book to exist, you know, sight unseen signing these contracts. Um, I'm wondering if we could kind of, uh, contextualize the academic and social and political environment that's been going on for the last maybe, um, five to 10 years in these fields, um, that, uh, that kind of this book was taking place in um, Mar. I don't know if you um, uh, would be able to to speak to that kind of where 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 did this come from in the in the academic and socio political culture that the world was just ready uh, it seems for this this book to happen.
3: Sure. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that, especially on the heels of Tom's comments, because it's interesting how kind of Rashomon style we all have our different perspectives on how things came together. And one of the interesting things about some of the folks who joined the conference from Command Lines, which was the conference that I co-organized with several colleagues, is that some of them didn't see themselves as being um likely candidates for a volume like this. And we had originally been thinking we were going to do a conference volume ourselves, but the co-organizers of that conference, you know, were busy with other things. And so that was why I tried to bring uh, Halcyon, Sophia, Mitali, uh, so that Halcyon Lauren, Sophia Noble, Metalli, Thacker, and Srila Sarkar, who were all um, invited keynotes at that conference along with um, Kavita and Tom over to, to this volume. And I remember that I talked to Halcyon quite a lot at a separate conference because Halcyon didn't necessarily see her work as fitting in to this sort of a thing because she's a linguist and has a PhD in technical communication. And felt that her work was kind of in a different disciplinary silo. And so we had a really long conversation where I was trying to convince her that her work was really, really critical for exactly the sort of thing we were trying to do. And it fit in extremely well. Um, And so by way of answering your question about, you know, the moment that this book came out of and how the general cultural context led to a volume like this, I think that's kind of a great anecdote because the thing is, this is not a problem that is contained in any one discipline, this issue of, you know, looking at the origins of the tech lash, we can sort of see it as a historical issue. But it's not just in the purview of historians. And the people in this book come from all different fields, you know, from linguistics, from um, studies of empire, from um, African-American studies, from sexuality studies. And I think that's one of the great strengths of the volume.
1: Mar, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more. You you mentioned this idea of the tech clash. You, you talked about the 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 problem that we're discussing is not in any one discipline what is what is that problem what is what is this tech lash what was being lashed uh, against?
3: Sure. well, I think it's something that is kind of a very old story where one industry consolidates a lot of power. This time, it's what people have taken to calling big tech. And it does a bunch of things very quickly, which are not necessarily in the benefit of um, consumers or in the benefit of society, but they're very, very lucrative. And for a long time, people felt that what Silicon Valley was doing, or a lot of people felt that what Silicon Valley was doing was somehow so important and so um, economically advantageous for the stock market and for some elite view that it was, you know, just a runaway train, it couldn't be stopped. And then as people started to realize it was, in fact, metaphorically a runaway train that couldn't be stopped, Uh, It continued to barrel along, but people now had hesitations that it was going to crash, especially after the first internet bubble burst. But then even in the early 2000s, there was a lot of momentum uh, for all of these technologies and products, even as a growing chorus of critics was saying, look, there are problems here with... um, privacy issues. There are problems here with structural discrimination. There are a lot of things that are going unaddressed that are being built into these products that are becoming infrastructural, that are becoming non-optional for everybody to have to use and participate in. And we need to start addressing some of these issues and not just leaving it to the market to work these out. And finally, that reached a fever pitch. And I think that Brexit had a lot to do with this. I think the breaking of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And then, of course, I think the presidential election where um, Donald Trump rose to power was another issue or another watershed moment in this um, growing tech lash where people were starting to say, how are these technological infrastructures really affecting not just our economic and technological outlook, but our societal outlook and our political outlook? And what is that doing, you know, fundamentally to democracy in the United States and in other countries? And that was, you know, for me, that was one reason why I really wanted to help um, put together this volume, Tom talked about how Ben kind of, uh, invited himself onto the editorial board. And I, I had the cheek to do the same thing. I remember after the first conference going up to Tom, I think in the copy room at Stanford, as he was looking for some copy paper. And I said, you know, I'd love to come aboard and, uh, help out with this too. And, um, I think Todd was a little taken aback, but then eventually it was, you know, the more, the merrier, merrier. And um, then I came on and Kavita came on. And um, like Tom says, I think that's made the volume a much more um, interesting volume than maybe it otherwise would have been because there there were uh, a lot of chefs, not too many chefs, but a lot of chefs.
1: Um, uh, Kavita, maybe we could bring you in here. I'm, I'm curious to know, um, first of all, uh, what your experience was like joining, um, this project and, and, but also how maybe this work differs, um, from some of the other work that, uh, had been going on in the, you know, mid to late 2010s. Um, this book strikes me as more, uh, global. It, it takes in a wider variety of perspectives, um, and yeah, I'm just I'm just curious for your take on what kind of differentiates this work from a lot of the other uh, work that's been going on in in the field.
4: Absolutely, Matthew. Well, the global is sort of where I live intellectually and materially. Often, um, you know, uh, it's really interesting to think about how academic work sort of divides up our work into the word that Mar mentioned, silos. Right, and while m- all his all modern historians ask similar kinds of questions about contingency, political change, social movements. We all tend to ask it in our silos and we tend to talk to people who study areas of the world that we specialize in. What was fun about this book was talking about the urgent ethical and political challenges that the so-called digital revolution and the tech clash raised for people all over the world. And so it was one of those rare moments where we didn't just get to talk about the Western subject in all its complexity and all its future possibility or the non-Western subject as forever condemned by history to walk in the footsteps and catch up with Western modernity. We got to talk as if we're all inhabitants of the same world at the same time. Um, And so that was really exciting. Um, So as um, all of the other um, editors have mentioned, we have um, people who write from different perspectives, not only along the power dimensions of the Western world, but also of non-Western, non-English speaking contexts. Um, So I was really uh, interested along with Srila Sarkar in the rise of authoritarianism in another location in India, um, which sort of slightly preceded the election of an authoritarian president in the U.S. Um, I was actually interested in tracing a long history of infrastructure to think about how we talk about tech as if it transcends political history. And so often the tech revolution is seen as something that will help India, for example, as your preeminent kind of post-colonial example in economic analysis, help India leapfrog across its underdevelopment. Or for Srila Sarkar, it was a concern with a very specific local context outside the capital city, Delhi, of Muslim women who were being taught technical skills. So these stories, I think, wove into the questions that were being asked in the West. And I think what the the volume does is really help us stage a conversation that is only a beginning. I think that that this book is only a launch to the, the larger conversations we hope everybody is having.
1: Maybe just following uh, that up, uh, Kavita, um, uh, what do you feel is the role of the historian, um, in kind of addressing these global issues, this book, you know, the, the title is like an alarm. Um, h- h- what can historians, uh, bring to the table, uh, in terms of, you know, sounding those kinds of alarms, stepping outside of the silos as it were, and kind of announcing, you know, we, we have a problem here and we as, uh, you know, academics are not just, um, you know, erudite, uh, 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 you know, stuffy people in the ivory tower. We have something to contribute and something to say to, to kind of push back against these dominant cultural narratives.
4: Yeah, I think historians have the perfect weapons for this moment, except we don't use it because we're sort of trapped in often professional codes in which, you know, we're afraid of being labeled as presentist or anachronistic if we draw lessons from previous periods for this period, right? So certainly for all of us um, and for other um, contributors, it was was a challenge to step outside our academic language and talk directly and make um clear statements that don't hedge with caveats and subclauses but i think history's strength in tracing stories that pay attention to contingency that don't jump on a teleological just so explanation as if, you know, the lead up to modernity determines all of the steps that all of us will take, for example. I think history teaches us a careful reading of archives of different practices, who did what, when, and what were the other choices and how did certain choices become the one that was followed. So an attention to power, right? All of these techniques that we learn in our professional practice, practice are incredibly useful for the current moment. So although all four of us are historians, I think we come to this discussion along with sociologists, information professionals, librarians, social movement activists, who are all asking the same questions and maybe using different methods to answer them. But yes, uh, for us, um, history has been, I think, a dominant, but not the only method. As Mar mentioned, we have linguists, we have sociologists, we have other people, uh, the
1: voices and other methods here Ben I, I I'm wondering if we could bring you in here this book is um, I- immediately one is struck by the, the the title your computer's on fire the chapter titles are you know these declarative statements I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about the the kind of writing style that was chosen here how this thing is presented uh, and what you were going for in the kind of tone of the book.
2: Absolutely. And um, to build off what Kavita is saying, you know, uh, language remains one of the most powerful weapons, tools, resources available to the historian, to the scholar. And I think as Kavita was suggesting, you know, the often the tendency is to sort of Allow the responsibility of scholarship to also complicate the prose to the degree that when historians write, their titles look like mini paragraphs. Um, And that is precisely the opposite of what this moment and, in fact, all of history demands. Um, You know, there's different moments for different types of prose. This is a moment for direct, uh, um, unapologetic um, uh, uh, language that delivers, you know, with arrow tipped precision, an argument. But that is also backed by a shaft of scholarly substance, and I think that's what this this uh, volume um, offers. Tom, you know, puts it very beautifully. I think in his introduction, um, and I'll talk for a second about the structure of the book. Um, but you know uh, that we are not interested in talking about the cloud that can be thought of as a factory or sexism that can be considered a feature rather than a bug of of our society, but instead that they are that. Uh, that the cloud is a factory, your AI is a human, that sexism is a future, not a bug. There's no time for equivocation. The time is over. Um, to that end, I just want to offer maybe here a bit of uh, a, you know, a mezzanine space between kind of the meta reflection on the project and also the substance that it brings together just by repeating um, the, the table of contents. Um, so here, the co-editors, are collective, uh, we have two introductions and two afterwards. Um, Tom begins with "Your computer is on fire." Mar follows with "When did the fire start?" A Kind of historical contextualization, and then in part one, nothing is virtual. I just invite the listener to listen to the s- sort of you know um, even sub-tweet length of, of these titles. Uh, Nathan Engsmeyer, "The cloud is a factory." Sarah T. Roberts, "Your AI is a human." Um, my own chapter, "A network is not a network." Kavita Philip, "The network will be decolonized." Mitali Thacker, capture is pleasure. In the second section, this is an emergency. Marr writes, sexism is a feature, not a bug. Karina Shloms writes, gender is a corporate tool. Halcyon Lawrence writes, Siri disciplines. Safiya Noble writes, your computer isn't neutral. Andrea Stanton writes, broken is word. Noah Wardrop-Fruin writes, you can't make games about much. Part three, where will the fire spread? Janet Abate writes, coding is not empowerment. Ben Allen writes, source code isn't. Srila Sakhar writes, skills will not set you free. Paul Edwards writes, platforms are infrastructures on fire. And Tom finishes us with typing is dead. Then Kavita adds an afterward: how to stop worrying about clean signals and start loving the noise. And I finish with how do we live now in the aftermath of ourselves. I hope what's obvious from that Brief cataloging is uh, the sort of clarity of the arguments. None of the context is there. We're not, you know, specifying that we're talking about Chilean uh, uh, networks in the 1960s, where I do drawing upon Eden Medina's fantastic work, or um, or Africa, or uh, you know, the various contextualizations of the work. We're bringing the reader to drink directly from the source of argument. We're asking. People to engage. And I want to note that I think, as such, when we position our language in a way that mobilizes audiences, those audiences spill beyond the normal bounds of books. And because of the strength of the writing, I believe, I hope, um, this book can reach both students in the classroom as well as give memorable uh, 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 moments, even memes, to parasitize policymakers' minds and to shape public conversation um so it's it's my hope that you know I, as i I, mean, I know that my co editors share this with me um that you know our fields will become infected with uh, a a drive for more clear more potent more plain language
1: yeah i mean that was uh without a doubt <laughs> the, my, my personal favorite feature of this uh, of this volume um and something that i've been frustrated with frankly in um in academia myself, as a, as a, as a graduate student, as a, you know, reader of academic content, it can be really tough, um, both for oneself, even in areas that I am intimately familiar with. I find uh, what do you, you know, what, what, what I should be the expert here. And yet I can't understand what's being said, let alone, you know, anyone, uh, in, in a subfield, let alone anyone not in academia trying to read these things. So what's beautiful about this book is that the, the academic rigor is all still a hundred percent present, uh, but it's got this, it's, there's this uh, clarity um, and, 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 and forcefulness and um, r- assuredness that a lot of writing doesn't have. Tom, um, you obviously care quite a bit about this, um, this writing uh, aspect of the book. I'm wondering if you could say a bit more uh, about that.
0: Thank you. Yes, uh, I uh, largely want to ex- uh, echo um, what's been said, what Ben was laying out here, and just add a few points about the tone of the book. This was, I, I know for just for myself, I think I had a, a somewhat eye-opening experience when I finally, very, pretty late in my career at that point, had had a chance to write for um, uh, basically kind of more public-facing outlets, magazine, newspapers. And this was um, this was unrelated to this book. It was connected to my work on that led up to the Chinese typewriter with MIT Press. But I was I was uh quite impressed and but surprised by the degree of hands-on-ness, for lack of a better word, that editors in the world of serious, you know, serious uh public-facing magazines have with respect to drafts and with respect to argument. And um, this is not this is not a, a critique of university presses because they're labor power is completely different. Their their funding structure is completely different. But um, the general approach of editors in the realm of academic publishing is is really hands-off. I mean, there is peer review, yes, and there is copy editing, yes. But uh, rare is it to have deep tissue work done on a volume. And it's exceedingly rare, and I think even more rare, and this is a bad thing, I would say. This is the one bad thing. As people achieve Higher and higher stature or rank, I think editors are less and less inclined to to make strong, constructive suggestions about um, changes. So I guess, for lack of a better word, developmental editing is not something that I have been very exposed to, and I I would venture to say that that's true for many many uh, scholars. But then, so dealing so this is you know writing with for these magazines and and getting a taste of how, how well, could, I actually was, I, I think the, the editors thought I was going to, uh, you know, stand, uh, put my roots down and fight for every last word. But in fact, they would send me back things and I would see track changes and suggestions and say, my, my gosh, you are an amazing editor. And, uh, yes, I think this makes it much more clear. And so I knew for myself, it was, it, it, it's kind of like, if you don't see it, you can't be at kind of moment with editors, is that going into this volume as compared to, uh, I've edited two other volumes, um, well, special issues of order, edited three or four prior to this point, I adopted a very, very, very hands-off approach to all of those volumes. But going into this one, um, I remember we, we, the, the four of us were having conversations just uh, as the editorial team, and we we cu- we came to the decision that regardless of rank you know uh, freshly minted phd's all the way up to people who are far more famous in their fields than than any of us i would venture to say we are going to have a very hands-on approach and so we you know we knew we were taking a risk because uh, in some sense because just like i said i think the the average or the the the, the it's par for the course that most scholars are not used to having really hands-on, high-touch editors involved, certainly at the level of titles. But we firmly requested, um, to the point of saying, "like this is basically a must," uh, for people to declare that their titles were going to be quite different than what than ones that many of us are used to producing within the realm of scholarship. And what we found is. I think without exception I won't I won't uh, put anyone on the spotlight if I remember anything but I'm pretty sure without exception all of the contributors were like great let's do this. I totally see why you know we're being asked to make a declarative declarative statement and in some cases the first the final declarative statement that you see in the book in front of you is not the one that the author first proposed and that includes members of the editorial team with our draft chapters and we Proposed things back to the authors and said, "Listen, this is great, but I actually we actually think that there's this isn't quite what you are. The arrow, your fire, you know, your 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 casting here. What about something else? What about something else? And um, there was total openness and total uh, willingness to do this. I think that all of the contributors realized that yes, um, you know, this is so necessary. And I'll just add one other thing." Which I think is self-evident from the book, if any readers, if any listeners have read it, um, but will be, is that there is not a shred, not an iota, of anti-theory nonsense. Like some people take the idea of plain-talking academics to this realm, basically of anti-intellectualism, uh, where they try to wear their anti-theoriness on their shoulder. Especially true among historians, who are like, just tell it like it is. Like we don't need this, and it's like no that's not that that's there is a way to be deeply engaged with theory to realize that theories are you know are 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 um uh the realm of theory is the realm of real life of battle of 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 blood and sweat and 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 you know these are these are these are not these are not div- div- divorced from life they are life um but just as like kavita was saying we have a bad habit in this profession of speaking in this kind of self-affirming code where we we hover at the surface we we hover at the surface even of our own thoughts instead of delving down into them and that was the that was the exciting challenge i know for myself of of being one of the editors of this volume is we're not asking people to take the theory out or to "Quote unquote," as as editors do sometimes in magazine and newspaper world, and this is a critique of them, of idea of so called dumbing it down, or the audience won't get this, or the reader doesn't care about this. It's like nonsense. The reader does care about this. We have all convinced ourselves that they don't, or even more difficult still, many people have convinced themselves that they don't. Uh, but we're not gonna we're not gonna dilute this. We're not gonna quote take. You know, take the problems out and just describe. Um, But we we insist as editors that we kind of come out from hiding and come out from using language as cloaks and and security blankets and teddy bears and come out and tell our readers what empirically we 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 feel extremely confident about. And Mm -hmm. that was just one other footnote, which is we told we asked our authors, we really asked our authors, please do not propose a kind of shiny new idea. This is mm-hmm. not This is not a volume where you're trying out a chapter or trying out an idea. We would like you to bring to the table the stuff that you have been working on for, for lack of a better word, all of or the majority mm-hmm. of or a sizable part of your career, um, but to come out swinging. Mm-hmm. And everyone did that. Everyone came out swinging. Some people proposed kind of newish ideas and we said, how about we bring it back to the thing <laughs> that you have built, you know, built built, built, built a castle upon, the rock. <laughs> that, that's what we really want you to bring. So it, that's it was a very different edited volume to be part of.
1: Mm. That's fascinating, and maybe we can speak about some of the some of the castles that, for lack of a better word, that you all have been building and that are featured in this volume. First of all, I I think that that was um, just a really interesting discussion about how edited volumes uh, come into existence, and I, and I hope that the listeners um, take away something about how I don't know how, maybe how academic publishing works or how these projects become formed because there's an interesting kind of little sociology there onto itself. But I'd love to turn to some of the themes. That are actually explored in the book. Two that stood out to me personally, and there are dozens we could talk about, are uh, materiality, which is to say the the physical, the physicalness of digital things. Um, We think of, you know, computers as things that are Wi-Fi or the cloud, these kind of non-existent, uh, formless voids of space uh, that transmit information. But in reality, the internet, uh, digital tools are like a physical thing that involve wires and physical infrastructure. Um, uh, um, Kavita, maybe, uh- I could ask you um, what what do you think is kind of um, the one of the general uh, arguments you try to make uh, in this volume about the the importance of focusing on uh, materiality and maybe um, to phrase it a different way, what do we lose when we ignore the kind of material aspects of high tech and digital technology?
4: Thanks, Matthew. Yes, uh, the material underpinnings of the internet um, is the subject or the focus of my chapter, The Internet Will Be Decolonized, and also of Ben's chapter on networks. Um, From my perspective, um, this was uh, a situation where we needed not just to do some of the usual work that we all have to do in the tech clash, you know, kind of fight back against tech bros, against kind of clueless, racist, sexist kind of um, Power, power brokers, um, here's a situation in which even your most well-meaning liberal gets it wrong about decolonization in the following way. We think of decolonization as a kind of wave of political and cultural movements stretching from the 19th century through the middle of the 20th, depending on which empire you're looking at from the Spanish to the British, including other European powers, how did these emerging nations come onto the stage? How did their citizens uh, become participants in an economy? Well, we have a language of power when we talk about economic development, when we talk about political regime change, but we don't have an equally trenchant critique of power when we talk about tech even for liberals, both in those countries and in the West, Tech seems to be the sort of deus ex machina, right? This is literally uh, emerging from the machine, this magic way of, as I said before, leapfrogging the problems of modernity. Even the ways we write the history of technology often sits over the histories of politics as opposed to being really embedded in these politics. And so I asked, how do infrastructural systems get laid? do internet cables get laid along the same routes as telegraph cables? Um, if those telegraph cables were laid in the interests of militaries, of signaling for the importance of, um, well, dominating the natives that they controlled, how do those politics seep into the very infrastructures of our new Datafied forms of political colonialism. And we found between the kind of tech idealisms that people like to invoke and the actual lived experience of digital modernity in the non-West lies a whole history of infrastructure. Um, And as uh, Tom said, I'm building here not just on new work by myself, but really on very old work in information theory, Jeff Boker and Lee Starr's classic book, Sorting Things Out, as well as Lee Starr's original feminist insight that infrastructure is a relation, not a thing. So the field of infrastructure really owes its origin to feminists who said, you know, just like you infrastructure female labor and it becomes invisible – we infrastructure things when we want them to work invisibly and we don't want to think about the labor of maintaining them. And there I built on new scholarly work on the ethnography of cables and the border gateway protocol. Um, there is this amazing dissertation by Ashwin Matthew from Berkeley's iSchool school in 2014, I believe. Um, that was the ethnography of the border gateway protocol in which Matthew shows the incredible human and technical labor that it takes to keep Internet Exchange points running. This doesn't fit into a simple story about states or nations. It doesn't fit into a story about corporations nor about nonprofits. This is about engineers who work together, network engineers, as well as nonprofit groups. Uh, And the phrase they use that appears in Matthew's dissertation is We work for the good of the internet. So here's a thing that we all supposedly work for the good of, but In that working across nations, corporations, borders, financial challenges, lies the entire history of power.
1: Um, Ben, I'm wondering if I could bring you in here as well to speak about the role of materiality in your work as well.
2: Yeah, no, just to um, echo and amplify Kavita's really rich Reading right there, I would add, um, you know, to your earlier question, what happens when we ignore power, or excuse me, when we ignore materialities that we strip ourselves of the language of collective power that has always already been available to um, organizations and people um, on the ground for so long? When we imagine wrongly that the tech revolution is a revolution and not a coup, for example, um, then we kind of uh, let the toxic waters of a kind of neoliberal archipelago of unconnected individuals. Um, um, I mean, so how many uh, mixed metaphors in that phrase? But like, we imagine ourselves in um, as as individuals free floating um, in an, in an ethos, an ethereal uh, virtual digital um, immaterial world, and that is just a, such an impoverishment of um, both historical and present day truth uh, truths, which are we have opportunity to mobilize and collectivize one another to build organizations and labor to push back um to have to to use language that um um you know brings about change and demands it as such and and i feel that you know often the tech language itself is, is is part of this problem um it imagines um uh, and an incumbent kind of impoverished individual instead of uh, um, I, you know so much so that you know we're, we're, our time horizons are the financial quarter instead of uh, the life scale or even the civilizational scale um, that that we could also be teaching ourselves to think in um, so I think there's there 's enormous consequence um, in short to how we envision um, uh, uh, technology. My my chapter just in a sentence says that whatever you thought a network was, it wasn't because you can't visualize a network. It's it's muddy. It's messy, as Kavita says. You know that maybe hmm. perhaps the it's a set of pipes is actually a pretty good metaphor. Um, hmm. that you know, ports around the swampy, grimy stuff. Um, of human behavior. Um, and and if we instead think about institutions and um, uh, regulation and social norms. Um, uh, and collaborations across space and time, then then I think we begin to get into the materiality of networks uh, in a way that would be much more sustainable
1: hmm. in addition to materiality. Thank you, Ben and Kavita for speaking about those uh, fascinating chapters. and there's obviously much more in the book about different types of um you know uh, material like uh, the cloud, the cloud is a factory. um the people who work in you know what a lot of what we call artificial intelligence is actually just people sitting at computers. Um, But another theme that I'd love to touch on is this idea that um, uh, inequalities that are already existing in the society can kind of get baked into the technology in a uh, fundamental way, right? Um, To the point where it's not about any given a person who is, you know, uh, maybe sexist or racist. It's it's it, it's it's about like the structural features of the way technology itself is built. And maybe uh, Mar, uh, we can turn to you. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak about some of your work in particular about um, uh, the role of women in the development of computing, or any other examples that come to mind that can kind of illustrate for us how. The, the the way things are in technology and the way things are built, you know, uh, stems from the level of who 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 is creating these things can, uh, yeah, really shape how they end up being defined, for lack of a better term.
3: Sure, yeah, you're a hundred percent right that it's not about you know anecdotal, for instance, sexism or anecdotal racism. It's not about any given person, as you put it, but it is about a lot of given people in a lot of cases, and more to the point, it's about an unwillingness to see issues of discrimination as though they are structural. As you were speaking, and as Cavito was speaking, and as Ben was speaking, I was thinking about how this almost libertarian ethos that's been very popular in big tech for a long time, has been a very effective strategy for dividing and conquering, for dividing and conquering consumers and positioning everybody who consumes these products as though they are not a class but individuals, and uh, for making sure that these problems that repeatedly Come to the fore can perpetually be looked at as though they're somehow mistakes or bugs or just um, coincidences that keep occurring and not somehow representations of a larger structural truth. And one of the reasons I think we're seeing so much labor activism right now in tech is that this idea of tech, um, you know, or this. Propaganda campaign, really, of tech trying to evade any sort of responsibility for the structural harms it's doing has not sat right with a lot of people, including the people who are building the technologies. Um, themselves. And that's one of the, you know, again, going back to why we wanted to do a volume like this, that's one of the reasons we wanted to do a volume that was accessible so that it wasn't just something that could be used in an undergraduate or graduate classroom, but something that could be picked up by folks who are, you know, out in the field and they would like to have um, a primer on the stuff that they're already coming to know from their own experience, but they maybe want to contextualize it a bit more. And while all of the people in this volume or, or most at this point, um, some are earlier career scholars, have written monographs about this um, these issues going back, you know, to the turn of the century, um, it's a different thing to have to read, you know, 10 or 15 monographs than to have a primer. And yeah, I think there's so many different ways to answer <clears throat> your question, but I want to return to to something that um, Kavita said about how important it is to not see histories of technology as um, separate from the social or political or economic contexts, and to really theorize power and to not come out with a teleological story about technological success just because technology has been supposedly aligned with progress for so long. Um, If this idea of um, infrastructure is, as Kavita mentioned, About hiding what's actually going on a lot of the time so that we don't have to deal with the workings of these systems. You know, if it's working right, you don't have to deal with it. Part of what we, you know, need to do as scholars and just as people is to unhide all of this first or at the same time as we're making these critiques because. Even getting to the point where we can look straight at these problems is a struggle. Has been a struggle, and I think that's one of the reasons that the um, the so called tech lash has sort of been so long in coming.
1: I wonder, um, Mar or or maybe even Tom, if you if you have any particular examples that can kind of really. Um... Uh, b- bring that out for the listeners. Uh, it, it might be hard to, uh, so for example, in your, your chapter, talks about sexism is a feature, not a bug. Do you have a particular example that is um, helpful to illustrate how? Um, I, I guess one might naively believe, like, oh, it's okay if you know all the people that build this technology are you know white men, as long as the technology is like created in a neutral way that is useful for everyone. What does it matter? Like who is, you know, in the room making it? Do you have any uh, examples that are top of mind or or anyone else that that kind of can just expose the the flaw in that kind of uh, thinking?
3: Sure. Yeah, I can definitely give an example for that. I'll I'll give two related examples. So one of the things that I often get asked or or sometimes told by people when we're talking about my work is that it doesn't um, matter if there's a gender imbalance because in in tech because oh it's just about women not choosing to go into certain fields and so as a historian of labor and gender and computing, I've had to show how, in fact, that is not true. It's not about choice. It's about um, structural changes and um, sort of a coercion of certain people out of the field and also an intentional drive to get other sorts of people into the field. So, for instance, going back into, you know, the 20th century, if you look at Um, the relationship between the drive for equal pay in the UK and who was doing early computing work, one of the things that you see is that they were tightly related and that, in fact, as long as it was profitable to have lower paid women doing technical jobs, in other words, employers could get a discount because they were only paying, as they put it, girl hours instead of man hours, then it was very much, um, you know, it was a uh, a very, is seen as a very savvy business decision to do so. However, as equal pay starts to come into place, now there isn't the discount for using women's labor anymore. And instead of employing as many women in these technical jobs, what you start to see is there's a preference to get. Men, young men, into these jobs who don't have the skills um, and have the women who are doing the jobs train them to, in fact, uh, be their replacements. Because why pay for women uh, if you have to pay the same rate? And relatedly, um, this might not seem tightly related at first, but I'll just explain briefly how it is. If you look at, for instance, the prototype to Facebook that Mark Zuckerberg made while he was at Harvard where um, we we almost overlapped, but not quite. And I'm thankful for that. Um, he created a site that was sort of a hot or not ripoff site that stole all the pictures of undergraduates from the internal Harvard Facebook servers, because a Facebook was a thing that colleges had before it was a platform. And he put them on this, um, without their consent, sort of hot or not ripoff site. And In doing so, this is something that Kate Lossie, who is a Facebook employee and um, also now a tech uh, critic and writer, has written about. He sort of built into the structure of the platform um, a type of sexist voyeurism. And you can see how that has continued on throughout the, um, you know, the platform that he now commands and controls. And so this idea of Who gets to be in the room, who gets to be paid, or who gets to be paid equally, and who gets venture capital to make their um, images of the world into infrastructure, into a reality, is very much a pressing issue. And it's not something, as you pointed out, that is um, usefully understood on the level of individuals and anecdotes. It has to be understood on the level of individuals channeling larger um, cultural power imbalances and larger um, power uh, differences and making them into new types of infrastructure that enforce discrimination.
1: Tom, I'm wondering if I could bring you in. Thank you so much for those examples, Mar. I'm wondering if we could just do uh, maybe one or two quick uh, examples from you, Tom, um, about um, uh, some of the ways that there is kind of maybe a Western bias in terms of the Latin alphabet or uh, left to right writing, or the way that kind of other structural features of the people who create the technology become um, embedded into the technology, uh, and then what those effects are as those technologies get distributed around the world
0: technology and critiques of technology offer up a way to perpetuate and continue and and enrich and, and deepen in fact racism without being susceptible to charges of or claims of racism that's 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 another dimension of of technology especially the intersection of uh, technological systems and language, and um, I I chart this out more more in my book than in in the volume. I, I touch on it in in my chapter. Typing is dead, but the synopsis of at least one part of the argument from the Chinese typewriter is that in the nineteenth century it was entirely in keeping with 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 uh, with social norms to utter all sorts of Cynophobic and outright racist um, comments and statements along lines of biological determinism and cultural essentialism and so forth. And you know, over the course of the 20th century, post World War One, the, Bo- the um, anti-colonial movements, uh, the rise of Boasian anthropology, and so forth. That, of course. These kinds of, these forms of racism did not die out, but it, it became something that one did not say necessarily in polite company um, without potential consequences. But where it lives on, where one can continue to make just profoundly uh, uh, um, broad brush essentializing statements about entire countries, entire communities, and so forth, is through the realm of where language meets technology. And uh, so, just I can give one example for a term that is used widely in uh, in highly technical domains of computing. Uh, So, like you think of Unicode Consortium and encoding standards, and uh, the people that so uh, you know people that most of us don't think about all that much. But there is a term: large character set, or complex languages, or complex character sets. Uh, And this is just when someone, when two people who know this term know this, they know what the other person is referring to. They're referring to writing systems like Chinese or Japanese or Korean. um, Many times also to certain uh, um, uh, writing systems, the South Asian writing systems. And this is not a, these statements, this terminology of calling languages, some languages complex and some languages simple or some languages hard and some languages easy. Is not in any way understood by the speaker as a statement of opinion or a relational statement. It is these things are uttered and encoded in literally, literally in kind of uh, textbooks and in encoding standards as neutral statements of fact about the essential qualities of these of these writing systems, and uh, this is completely untrue. Uh, The reason why. Some writing systems uh, and therefore the languages with which they are associated are more "quote unquote" complex than others. Is uh, emerges out of not a not a ten year history or a fifty year history, more like a two hundred year history or at least a hundred fifty year history, in which layer upon layer of now deeply embedded uh, kind of bedrock, forget infrastructure. We're talking about the Bedrock underneath the infrastructure laid down over 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 uh, decades and decades and decades that has so fundamentally baked in forms of inequality in contemporary information technologies that it takes <laughs> it takes massive excavation work to get back to a time in which this was not. Um, understood as common sense. like You have to dig down many layers of the geological strata to get to a place where people are not talking about, quote unquote, how hard or inefficient or slow or comically absurd or whatever these other terminologies are with regard to the Chinese Chinese, uh, language, Chinese writing system. There was a time in the early modern period, which for historians is not a long time ago, in which visitors to what we now think of as China Marveled at the fact that, and also um, Edo era, uh, former you know Tokyo as it used to be known, Edo, visiting what uh, what what we now think of as Japan, marveling at the fact that one could buy books for basically the cost of a noodle soup, while books in Western Europe, uh, you know, it's certainly uh, cost an arm and a leg because we're talking about. Manuscript printing generally um and even the early movable type uh, so but then fast forward a moment and and we get to this place in which it is absolutely natural and totally considered apolitical to talk about how difficult complex Chinese is, and to make statements that if you really uh, if you really scratch at them, have just a touch of just a touch of um just a touch of genocide in them, for lack of a better word. And I'll give you a little, just a touch of genocide statement that is extremely common. Why didn't Chinese people just learn a different language? Like, why didn't China just get rid of its writing system? Wouldn't then they could have used uh, Morse code, and then they could have used typewriters, and then they could have used computers? Like, why? Why are they so conservative? Why, and it's like, can you just? This is. Um, the sort of nonchalant, casualness with which ideas of such proportion are 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 just tossed out reveals simultaneously just how deeply embedded this the mm. self satisfaction and complacency of basically the the sort of Latin alphabetic world is, mm. uh, but also how cavalier we are about you know <laughs> we, we, we the more complacent a person gets the more like profoundly weirdly optimistic they are about how everyone else in the world has this just un uninhibited capacity for just total epochal change. Hmm. And so that's what, you know, that's that's where the 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 chapter comes in to try to to dig into these kinds of layers. I mean, basically from the mid-19th century onward, information technology as we understand it is profoundly, and unequivocally uh, biased towards a subset of writing systems on on Earth and deeply unwelcoming to most others. And those, quote unquote, most others actually form the majority of the world's population or language users, let's say, um, to the point where most people, most computer users on Earth do not use keyboard-based computing the way that keyboard-based computing was first conceptualized in the United States, Western Europe, Britain. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Basically the rest of the world has modified, hacked, uh, bootstrap changed this this thing. Um, And that's what accounts for the success of keyboard-based computing globally, Um, basically The non-Western world saved the computer Hmm. from its own profound parochialism and narrowness. Hmm. Uh, So, you know, this is where to 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 Mars earlier point. I mean, if you really want to piss off an engineer that is not sympathetic (laughs) to these kinds of arguments, you know, try to tell them that that uh, the pixel is political, or Hmm. that arrays. Are political, or that ordered lists are political, or search algorithms. <laughs> I don't mean Google search. I mean searching through a text document. These are like blood-soaked political things, and that's where many say, "Like, wait a minute. I'm fine with. T- I'll, I'll, I'll follow you. <laughs> I'll follow you to, you know, face recognition problems. I'll follow you down the road of accent bias. I will follow you down the road of, of." Uh, but I will not follow you down the road of saying that an ordered list or an array or a pixel is they want to believe that at the core technology is pure. They Mm -hmm. want to believe that. And what, um, trying to say in, in, in my chapter, and also in, in my larger set of works is, uh, I don't pure and contamination is actually the wrong way to put it. I like, I like words like muddy and just, um, viscous it's like <laughs> no it's viscous all the way to the core mm-hmm. there is no pure core um, and that many are just they're not willing to give up that idea of a pure core to technology
1: right viscous to the core um thank you for the those examples Tom and uh to, to whether so what I mean I, I think that the 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 kind of theme that is emerging here, I hope, uh, from, from these discussions is that the technology really just like recapitulates a lot of the like political and social dynamics, whether that be in the, you know, colonial uh, global power dynamics of how cables are laid or the um, like inbuilt uh, structural sexism or misogyny that exists in the culture or the differences between uh, language systems and the prejudices there. Like th- these technologies are just a, a reflection. And, and and I think this book uh, make, does a really good um, example of that. Uh, Mar, did you want to add something
3: uh, quickly on that theme? I just wanted to make a quick comment um, because of Tom's really interesting turn of phrase or he, he said something like the majority of users are, others, that tech is othering a majority of users. And it occurred to me that we talked a lot about how great Halcyon Lawrence's work is, but we didn't actually mention, I think, explicitly what her chapter is about. And her chapter called Siri Disciplines is about this very issue. So looking at uh, speech recognition technologies and how they're built around American, British English and Australian accents. When in fact, at one point uh, recently, the majority of people in the world didn't speak English with an American, British or Australian accent. Now I think it's just, just under a majority, but a huge number of people were having to either be misunderstood or to code switch to interact with these voice, quote unquote, recognition technologies. And it reminded me of a point that I think, you know, is maybe obvious, but really important to bring up in a space like this. And it's that um, black women have been some of the loudest and, um, you know, the soonest out of the gate, most insightful Uh, tech critics, um, you know, thinking of the bombshell that was Sophia Noble's algorithms of oppression, thinking of um, the work of even people inside the tech field, like Dr. Timnit Gebru. And um, along those lines, thinking about, you know, what's happened to her and how tech is now trying to get rid of its internal critics, as well as sort of push off its external critics. Um, I just wanted to point that out. And, you know, I think that also makes this moment a very important moment for this kind of work.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. And I think that that speaks really well to this idea of how much it matters, you know, who is, um, uh, who is in the room and, and, and the way that these like systems, uh, you know, structurally, um, uh, exclude uh, certain <laughs> literally literally certain voices in the case of uh, in the case of Siri I, I we have spoken for a long time as I said uh, in our discussion earlier I think we could easily do this all day the ideals th- Forum here would be to have all the authors in this volume here, and each could speak for an hour about their work, and we could talk about it. And that, that I guess that's what you do at these at these uh, at these conferences. So it really sounds quite fun. Um, but uh, uh, for us, uh, we can only uh, speak for so long. I'd love to conclude by speaking about the lessons that. Um, this book presents inter- for, for pedagogy and where we're going. Students are continuing to be trained in computer science and software engineering um, and are entering this, uh, the, these fields. There, People are starting companies and getting venture capital to, to create these entities. Um, what kinds of lessons uh, would you say, or are, 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 are maybe takeaway messages, um, in particular for young people who are entering these fields and interested in these Topics, Maybe, Kavita, um, uh, we could start with you.
4: That's a question I think that's close to all of our hearts since we teach undergraduates this. Um, I would want to tell uh, a young person in technology something I suspect they already know, namely technological politics is war by other means. We are in a struggle for the shape of the future, and the future includes the shape of ourselves, what it will mean to be human. The historian of empire, Raymond Betts, has a quote that I use. He said, empire was as much stage performance as military engagement, as much the presentation of arms as the firing of them. And what he means is that we we shouldn't underplay, of course, the force of arms and the incredible physical, real, bloody genocide that Tom has referenced as well. But integral to that are forms of representation, forms of living and being that get under our skin, so to speak. And that's what tech is doing to us. Every time you... Uh, briefly scan through and not really read terms and click on the bottom and accept your Facebook or Google requirements for becoming part of that technological citizenship, you are taking part in that war. So I would want to say to them, if history seems too complicated, if fuzziness is not an aesthetic sensibility you've embraced, think again. All of the things we're trained to reduce or dismiss as human error when we're taught technology That's where the story lies. So I'd want to just start with, look for those stories. (laughs)
1: <laughs> fantastic! I think that's a fantastic place to end. Um, thank you to the four of you for being here and for speaking with me and for speaking with each other. Uh, this has been a, just a super <laughs> stimulating and fascinating uh, discussion. I feel really lucky to be able to speak to you all in this uh, in this um, space together, and also um, I'm excited that that these ideas get to uh, get to spread to so many people. Um, The book is Your Computer is on Fire. Today, I've been speaking with Thomas Mullaney, Benjamin Peters, Mar Hicks, and Kavita Philip. And once again, thank you all so much for this uh, fantastic work that you're doing. Um, I'm sure there's a lot to chew on uh, for our listeners.
2: Thank you, Matthew.
4: Thanks, Matthew. And all the best with your amazing podcast series. Thank Thank you, Matthew.
3: Matthew.